0: Well, hello, Jacob. How are you today? Hope you're doing okay, but that was not my question.
1: <laughs> oh, dang. See, you got to be careful. <laughs> like,
0: I know. Careful. My question for today is, what is the most memorable conference that you've ever had, and what made it so spooky good on this Ooh. Halloween day?
1: It is Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, Halloween night, to be exact. Yes. Um, okay, man, most memorable conference that and what made it spooky good? There's a lot that popped to my head immediately. Um But I suppose Um probably the biggest one that sticks in my brain. The one that I kind of reference, like when I'm telling stories about conferring, right? You know, we, Uh our brains go somewhere when we're talking about successes and stuff like that. And this conference was good for a variety of reasons, but it was probably last year and I sat down with this student and we were just kind of going over their writing, just looking at it. And, you know, when I sit down for a conference, I always try to just read a piece to kind of take it in, right? These days, um, I often ask my students, you know, what do you, what do you want to talk about? What are you focusing on? What do you want me to look at? But um, sometimes I'll just sit and just read. And this is what that conference was. And I was just reading the piece, and it was good, but it kind of – it was kind of all over the place. Like it was – it looked like something that was wanting to be – a poem but wasn't right it was it had the flow it had the lines of a poem but it wasn't broken up it was kind of all written in paragraph form and it was just kind of there and we went through it and what this conference did is i ended up asking the student kind of you know where's your where's your mind with this and she told me she's like well you know i just i'm working through you know my parents' divorce. She's like, that's what I'm thinking what? about. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, so when you're writing about this, I was like, what's your what's your point? Like, what what do you want me to get from reading this? And she was like, well, honestly, I don't. She's like, I don't want you to get anything. I kind of laughed. I was like, okay, so I'm not the audience, <laughs> sweet. I was like, so what do you want? And she said something along the lines of, she was like, I want to tell my parents that, like, I'm okay. And that idea, one, is incredibly deep, right? It is an idea that transcends just the, 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 the basic idea of what school writing is, right? We think of school writing as writing that is all about prompt and form and trying to get something in there that trying to get trying to get kids to write a specific way right and this was a moment where i got to listen to a student and she was telling me that she just, she wanted to communicate a message and within this conference i started talking with her through all kinds of ideas but with that there was a moment between us where we started bouncing those ideas back and forth and it was like this energetic Moment in this conference didn't. I'm talking about it longer than the conference took, right? Like it only took, um, you know, a minute or two, maybe three tops. But that conference was so emblematic of what a good conference feels like Um, when when a student is honest about purpose. And in that moment, I was in, I was in a mood, right? Because I think some of these conferences are dependent on our moods. I was in a good enough mood, in a, in, a, in a problem-solving mood to where we could really dive in, and I knew exactly what to say. I don't know what I told her. I couldn't repeat it verbatim here. I just know we focused on message and we focused on key language and we picked out some vocabulary she used, um, that we could really hone in on. And I just remember walking away from that being like, man, that was a conference, you know, like that, that was something that we can, uh, that we can be happy about today. So that's one, that's the one that pops in my head. I don't know if it was the best one, but it was spooky good because we, we reached a new level, um, in that talk, I think.
0: Well, with that, welcome to Crafting Draft with Pam Ochoa. Well, I mean, Jacob Chastain and Pam Ochoa. And today we want to talk to you all a little bit or have a discussion again about conferences. And this time we want to be a little more pointed and talk about the anatomy of a conference and then whatever else pops up. There were some things in that uh, conference that you just mentioned that I felt um, might go along with some of our conversation about the anatomy of a conference. Yeah. So my next question would be maybe what do you think that is? <laughs> well, what is I, the anatomy of a co- good conference?
1: That's it. I mean that's a good question because this is conferencing. I think we said this on the last podcast, but conferring is like one of those things you kind of have to learn as you go. Um, personally. Uh, the best resource I read that really taught me conferring was, I guess there was two resources, book whisperer and Donald Miller, um, was like the reading side. And then Nancy Atwell's in the middle was the writing side for me and reading Mm -hmm. both of those, um, changed how I approached. Now my, my writing one eventually evolved from with Lucy Calkins and Linda reef and Reggie Routman and all the way up to, uh, you know, obviously Donald Graves and stuff like that. So you have like that one evolved in so many different ways and continues to evolve. But I don't know, like, I feel like the anatomy for me, and I'd be curious what your answer is. The anatomy Mm -hmm. for me is it changes depending on why I'm talking to that student. So for instance, if I'm called over to a desk And a student says, Chastain, can you look at my piece? Awesome. Uh, I approach that much more differently than when I sit down with a student who I haven't spoken to in a while, right? Who hasn't Mm -hmm. uh, conferred with me in a week or more. Um, Those are different anatomies. And I think we could probably go into kind of the nuances of these. But I I suppose these days, my anatomy starts with... What's my purpose for being there? That determines what I say first. Um, I approach the child's piece with as a reader first and as a writer second and as a teacher third. Um, and then we go, depending on student questions and students' responses, to my initial kind of beginning. But how, do, how, do, how does yours begin? Is it is it similar to that or do you have a specific way you think about it?
0: Well, sometimes I, what I try to do is kind of what you did in the one you mentioned, is let the let the person I'm working with tell me their purpose. And sometimes the kids don't have one, so my first question sometimes is exactly how you did, and you said, "So what is it that you really want to get out of this conference?" So I think that's good. So I think one of the things is when you're questioning uh, these students, I like to question them as they are, and they are writers, and so when I start talking to them that way, that that's very helpful. And then you have to listen, you have to listen, but you have to listen with the idea of time. So you want to listen for that one question or that one way to drive them to the level that they're wanting to go. So,
1: yeah, well, and you know, what's funny is we did this as a PLC the, uh, this week. So once a week we meet as we used to do two, but COVID era teaching has thrown a lot of a lot of kinks right. in the system. Um, so once a week the whole team meets as a vertical, right, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and I try as much as I can to wedge in, um, PD because we have a lot of new teachers. Um, so I, I'm trying to bring them in, and and district isn't really doing a lot of training. So I'm kind of try, I'm trying to make up for that as much as I can. And uh, luckily, I like doing that. And it's not just me presenting. By the way, you know we have uh, we had our district coordinator present and stuff like that. So this isn't like the Chastain show. But you know, every once in a while, I do step in and do some type of uh, some type of training just to do it. And this one that I did was I brought in three pieces. We only got to two, but I brought in three. <clears throat> Uh, examples of student writing in various forms. I brought in a super high-level student who's actually digital right now that wrote an amazing poem. That's the one we didn't get to, unfortunately. And then I brought in a student who is uh, an English language learner who wrote something fantastic, but it needed work. And then I brought in something that was from a student who was on level last year and is doing honors this year and needed some work. She needed some structural work. And I wanted to see but the the point of the PLC was to look at three pieces and talk through them about if you were the teacher, what positive things would you say, and then what would you say next to push them and where they needed to go? So the whole identification of what does this writer need right now, right? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because that's hard. That's incredibly difficult to look at a piece, let alone difficult to do when you're in the middle of a class and you're thinking of 400 things to do at once. Um, But to look at a piece and go, oh, they're really great here. They need to really focus on this to elevate. And that's, it's also kind of subjective too. You have to be really confident in your writing knowledge to look at a piece and encourage someone. So, for instance, if I looked at your piece um, that you gave me and I was like, oh, she's really good at this. If she just tightened up her her descriptions and you didn't do so much lead up and you used a little bit more of simple sentences just to kind of give some concrete details, it would really mm-hmm. elevate your piece. But you have to be confident in so many things just to say what I just said, right? So right. that. Uh, was a really good exercise for us to do just as a team because we kind of got to model, but I got to show like, I don't, I I don't have the answers all the time. So like I listened, like uh, there was teachers who pointed stuff out in the piece that I didn't notice. Um, and I was like, Oh, that's great. Like that was like a really good observation. I like jotted it down and I actually used their comments in my conference with that student the next day when they came back into my classroom. So Um, I kind of forgot the origin of why I was telling this story, but the, (laughs) 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 but like that whole, that, that, that idea of reading something and then I guess that would be the anatomy, right? Like getting to the point to where you can offer a suggestion that not only encourages them as a writer, but improves them as a writer. I think that is the, whatever anatomy you use, it needs to be those two goals.
0: Yeah, I think your results are definitely important. But not only as a teacher do you need the results, those kids need to know the results. I mean, they need to feel like they're getting results from this. And I think the more that they do, the more that you do, and make that available in your classroom, the better it gets. So uh, I like I like what Penny Kittle has to say a lot of times about her conferences, where she listens and in, and then she... She asks a lot of questions from, from them, you know, where are you going? But then the other thing she does is she brings in her own writing. And I think you said this the other day, is that she not only brings in her writing, if it gets kind of, she asks them, what do you think about this? You know, if they don't know what to say. And so she models with her own writing. Another thing I like to have when I have with me is I like to have some books there just regular old books, nonfiction, fiction, any kind of books, just have a little stack with me. It's because a lot of times what I'll find is uh, an example, like I can just, if I want them to do a certain type of, uh, like you said, simple sentence, or I want to show them like with description or like when they're doing dialogue, for example, if I'll notice that they just run all their dialogue together. That might be something, you know, well, let's see what this person does with their dialogue, and I'll just pull it up and open a page. It looks magical, but I kind of already know where some of this okay. stuff is. But anyway, I'll, sometimes I just open a page, then mm-hmm. I'll say, you see, there's a little bit of description, a little bit of dialogue, a little bit of description. Look what, what they made short. Look what what's long. So sometimes I, I do that, so I make sure I have some resources with me to help me uh, guide them. <laughs>
1: Well, and that I, I one you and I I think do that almost exactly the same, which is specifically for dialogue because dialogue is something mm-hmm. that's everywhere. And if kids are reading any fiction at all, they're running across it right, and they've seen it over and over again. But 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 without fail, kids try to run dialogue together. They put it all in one paragraph. They don't right. they don't drop it. They don't close it. They don't punctuate it. And for me. Um, I, I, I've had, I've changed the trajectory of writers just by simply saying, Hey, you have a lot of talking here. There is a reason why we punctuate dialogue a specific way. So open your book that you're reading. And just open to mm-hmm. a page that has talking on it. And then they open. And I go, what do you see here that you're not doing? <laughs> and, <laughs> and sometimes they're able to point it out, but sometimes they're not. And I right. show them. And then after that, if I need to guide them a little more, I'm like, okay, so look at this. And then once I show them how there's a paragraph break at when people change talking uh, or when the person who's talking changes, I go, why do you think the author does that? And then we get to the idea of clarity, which is the whole point of grammar in the first place. You know, we forget, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some of a. Uh, I'm sure there's some grammarians listening to this podcast like who are just like uh, Nazi about the, the whole grammar life and just, you know, they correct everyone. And I think there's a place in the world for those people. I really do. We all need editors, right? Um, I would be nowhere without editors and people who could proofread my stuff because I'm not so – um, I know grammar, but I, I'm not specific enough about it. So I make errors all the time. But um, the majority of cases, what people need to know is not necessarily grammar rules, but the patterns of power, as Jeff Anderson puts them, but also this idea that grammar is designed for the reader, is designed to communicate better. That's what grammar's for. If you ignore all the rules and everything needs this and all of that, Grammar is essentially designed so I can take what's in my brain and put it in your brain in a way that conveys meaning of some kind. Right. And uh this is why you have Have you ever read um any Cormac McCarthy by any chance? He uh, wrote no. You would know what you would know his stuff. So his stuff has been turned okay. into movies, but uh No Country for Old Men Oh yeah. Um I know who you're talking about. Uh, his his most famous book that he's gotten the majority of awards for is uh, The Road, which is an incredibly sad story about a dad and his son living in post apocalyptic times. Um oh, real- sounds
0: like now I'm not gonna yeah. probably read that book. I will cry through <laughs> so, the whole thing. You know what's you so know funny. I cry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my you would because it is <laughs> It's incredibly sad. Uh, I tried to read it during quarantine, like when everything Mm-mm. was locked down. And I was like, nope, that's not going to happen. Mm-mm. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, by the way. But I, re- I legit picked it uh. up. And I was like, oh, yeah, quarantine. Let's read this. And I was like, nope, this nope. is not the energy I need. <laughs> Um, it's a fantastic book though. Like if you're in a good state of mind and you haven't read the road, you should definitely read it. Although you will cry, but it is, um, his more upbeat stuff is books like uh, all the pretty horses. I think he won the national book award. Yeah, for that, so. I
0: have read I, Yes. So I just I mean, got hit west.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of, he's, in my opinion, the greatest um, American author of our time. He is, he's the Dickens of the modern era. Actually, he's more of the Hemingway of the modern era because he writes <laughs> really simple sentences. But um, he does. So anyway, that was a long tangent. But the reason I brought him up is because he doesn't use quotation marks in his dialogue at all. So the only way you know someone's talking is by paragraph breaks. And. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because it's kind of jarring at first, but once you get, you know, 20 pages, 50 pages into his books, uh, it really pulls you in in a sense that you, you understand all the, the laws and the rules of his books, right? You know, everyone, it's like the Mm -hmm. author's voice. Like you understand, like if you read early Stephen King, He loved M dashes. He used them all the time. The shining and he, he put like descriptions and thoughts of characters in parent in parentheticals, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't very common in books these days, but like the shining has them and he uses them in a bunch of other books. But today's Stephen King, a lot less high on drugs and alcohol does not use any of those. (laughs) Um, he, 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 he describes it in different ways and that stuff, the, the language of the author is spoken through the use of grammar. And that is a lesson we can start teaching. I mean, as early as elementary school, but definitely in middle school. And we're like, what are you trying to say? How do you grammatically show that? And does your grammar support your message?
0: Well, yeah, I think that's true. And if you pay attention to something like that, that also, when you start seeing a pattern with your students, like even if it's on the wrong side of our grammar world, it's a great place to realize, oh, I need to stop and teach this to the group. So I've done a lot of lessons like that where people walk in, and go, Well, we're not doing that just yet. Yeah, but my kids were. My kids were. So I just stop. Okay, everybody, let's just stop. I wanna I just learned something that I need to teach you. And so we do that a lot of times. So I like to use conferences that way as well. But um yeah, I think I think a conference is a great place for a student to develop their voice. Uh, you help them along with that, and I think what you said was perfect. How do you deal with? How do you deal with the when? Do you do a conference while you're teaching? I mean, do you have a certain time in the writing, where or in the reading where that you do a conference? I mean, do you just conference all the time? Is it willy nilly, or do you have a specific time and place? Where you make sure you conference? Are you very intentional about that, or not? Or what do you recommend?
1: Um, I am far more hands off with reading, so I'll start there. So, like my reading conferences, I reading confer, I, I confer in reading all the time, but it is I am very conscious of the fact that when I'm conferring with a student, I'm going to disrupt their reading. Um, in some way, right. Cause I'm stopping them to talk to me. Right. So there, there's, there's <laughs> some type of restriction there. And you know what actually makes me let I, I, the reason I conference with reading and less isn't because, um, it was an idea gave in to me or that I generated. It was when I was at ILA, I sat in a session with Mary Howard and Laura Robb and, uh-huh. I know you we, – we talk about Laura Robb all the time, and I know you're such a huge fan. We have to – she has to be – I think she has to be our first uh, so. <laughs> out-of-person interview we bring on the, on the Craft & Draft podcast. Just because she's so amazing, and she's so mm-hmm. open, and uh, I actually have a blog post due for their blog soon that um, – they they were kindly enough to email me about in advance and remind me that I needed to <laughs> write one. Um, her and her son, who's a principal, so they're right. they're both very That's great. That's Evan Rob, right? Yeah, yeah, they're both yeah. amazing. But um, Laura, what she told me, or rather, what she told the group at her pr- presentation was, she was talking about someone had asked a question about conferring with students and like, what do you do while kids are reading? Right. That's always the question. What do you do when kids are independently reading? What does the teacher do? Um, and she said, if I'm not working with a small group, collectively kid watching, conferring or reading with them, that's essentially, that's a kind of like a paraphrase of kind of the, the three points that she said. And she said, I I'm very aware that if I'm conferring with kids, I'm taking away their reading time. And if you have a group of kids, for instance, who are not reading at home, they don't read outside of your class anywhere. They only read during the time you give them. Every minute is a minute valued. If they, I mean, let's say you're in a very restrictive environment and they only get to read 15 minutes a day, which is pretty common, I think in secondary. 15 mm-hmm. minutes seems generous a day, really, in secondary. Right, right. Um, that's where I started. But it uh, if you're doing that and you rob them of five minutes or four minutes, it's going to take them three minutes to get back into it. So now you're down to really only reading a handful of minutes for that time. And that is just not enough for the volume. Uh, those types of students really need to get better, right? To be able to dive into story, to dive into books, to get better at reading, and that was that was like mind blowing to me because everyone's always like, you know, so many people push just confer, 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 but you have to know your students, and if they're like, I feel much better about conferring with a student who goes through five books a month. Right. Then than, than the student who is still working on book one for the year in October. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question or my answer to you there is in reading, uh, I definitely take a more controlled approach to that to where it's very targeted. I don't do it nearly as much. It takes me about four times as long to get to all of my readers and conferring than does writing. Uh, maybe more than that, in all honesty, because a lot of my students just don't, they just don't read at home. And I know that. So I want them to read in my classroom. So before I get to writing, how do you feel about reading? Um, well, conferring? Is yours kind of the same? Well, yeah.
0: I mean, I, I, I do a lot of kid watching. I think I do that probably more than anything.
1: And then I'll read. And that can't be overvalued, by the way. Like watching readers tells you a lot about readers.
0: No, it really does. And then what i what I'm looking for, though, when i'm 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 kid watching on the reading, is I'm looking to see, are they turning the page at a particular amount of time? Or are they staying on the same page? If I notice that they're staying on the same page, that tells me, I need to go conference with that kid. I got to find out why. So that's when I might kind of go in, if you will, for the for the bob in for the Apple, so to speak, you know, since we're. Halloweening today, but the thing is, <laughs> but I might go in and I say, you know, like so. I've I've noticed is how are you doing on this reading? How much do you like this book? So I usually start because typically, if they're not turning the page, one or two things, there's something wrong, and their mind is somewhere else because they've had an issue, or that they just picked a bad book, and they can't. I mean, they're just stuck. So sometimes when they're, it could be the third thing, they really are stuck and they understand what they're doing. The other day I pulled a kid up that was similar to that. And I said, so what's going on? Uh, You know, how, how is this, this piece? Are you, are you liking it? And they're like, I don't get it. Okay, well, let's see what we can find for you. And so I was able to find a book. I realized I looked real quick about, realized that there were at least five words that he probably couldn't read. And, I went for a lower level book, and what it was that, sure enough, he started reading a book. It was similar on the same topic, you know, same type of topic. But I went and got him a new book. So I try to look around and see what they're doing, take notes, etc. Uh, you know, kind of mental notes mo- mainly. Uh, when I was new at this, I would take, I would actually write down all my notes, and I probably should do that more. I'd probably be more specific, but I don't. It's more like in my head. And then, uh, or if they're like really moving through a book, you know, that's another little flag. Either they're moving through the book because they really are that good, or they're moving through the book because they're wanting you to think they're reading. So I might go into that one because I figured I'm not interrupting what's not happening. So that's usually when I pick my reading Conferences. And then, like you said, I think that was a good point, what you said about uh, any time is you got time is precious, especially if they're not reading anywhere else. So I think that's that's something I'm going to take from what we talked about tonight, kind of put it in my you know little note to self. Yeah, keep that in mind.
1: And, and it goes to one of my favorite uh, Donnellan Miller quotes, which was kind of like one of the first ones I ever – and I've heard her say it. I've, I've heard her speak several times at this point, and she talks heavily about if kids are not reading in your classrooms, they're not reading at home. And I, I, I believe that to be true to such a degree. So I have um, one student that I'm thinking of right now. She isn't an avid reader at all. She's very good at reading. She's very uh she she knows her stuff. She has some difficulty in some parts, but for the most part she is not what you would consider a struggling reader, right? She doesn't have a reading life. She doesn't have books at home. She's busy. She plays sports, she goes to tutoring, she's always trying to get her grades up and she has a crazy like home life, right? She has like family members, all that stuff. Um so her she will, She usually doesn't read at home, and I know that because I had her last year, and in this year, she's she'll read, she read uh, The Poet X recently and was blown away by this book. She connected to the character. Um, she, I mean, she loved it. She read the whole thing in like a week, and I was like, sweet, got you, right? But then it took me a while to find her another one and all this other stuff. But once I did, I know when she's into something, because I gave her several books before that, while she was transitioning into, like, another one. And I knew she was not reading at home because she wasn't moving, right? I was just kind of watching and I walk around like, oh, she's on page 25 today. And then three days later, oh, she's on page 35 today, which means she's only reading a handful of pages. And that means she's only reading in my room. And I resisted conferring during those times and just kind of rather – kid watched, as you say, because that was giving me the data that I needed. And I think that's kind of where that comes down to, at least for the reading conferences, what data do you really need? If if kids are struggling, for instance, like if you have a kid that's kind of been floundering through a book for a month. And they're not anywhere near being done. That's when you kind of really make sure to have a targeted conference and find out why. Is it because they're not into the book? Is it because they don't understand the book? Is it because they just picked one because you want them to read and they have no idea what to read in the first place? So they just picked up something that looked okay. <laughs> and they think if they stare at the book, the teacher's going to leave them alone. right? Um, that inf- it's, it's like deciding what data do you need. Do I need to talk to them about how what their characters are doing today or do I just need to find out if they like the book at all? Do I need to find out if they're bored or do I need to find out if they don't understand, right? I think mm-hmm. as, a, as the educator, you almost have to be like, what information do I need to move this kid forward in their reading, What's the best course of action to get that? Sometimes it's a conference. Sometimes it's watching, right? And just figuring right. out how often they turn the page. And this is me thinking out loud at this point. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds great. This is exactly, this is the information <laughs> that I, this is kind of what I do like subconsciously. And this is, this is why this process is so hard to describe to administrators, by the way, because it's not, exi- it's not a, a, a perfect science.
0: Right. Well, and another thing that popped into my head was Chrisovanni are you familiar with Chris Uh I she's don't think so. she's a she's a a writer teacher out of Colorado and she's written some books uh, but one of the books wow all of a sudden I lost the name of it but anyway she, um, she's the one who created some fix up fix up strategies things like that but one of the, I went to one of her conferences one time and uh, she talked about how smart kids fake read because they know the teacher is going to give them enough of the information that they can fake the answers. So they never read the book. And uh, and so what they do is they read the front, they read the back, they read a little bit in the middle, then they do whatever they want. And they don't read the whole book. And I thought, well, that's something that you want a kid watch for as well. Because you want to move the smart kids along as well. So Sometimes they don't challenge themselves. And they already... So so that's one thing to... you know, They also have trouble at times. So you want to watch for that as well. So that was something... Christophani talked about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, I love that comment because I had an academic coach who is no longer the academic coach at my campus. He found a really great job and moved on, but he helped me a lot through my teaching, but he was never hundred percent sold on students independently reading ever. Oh, right. He, he <laughs> never I I had
0: some conversations with him. I know yeah. who you're talking about. Yeah, like that And, and you
1: know, good. what's funny is he's, he's one of the best educators I've ever met. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the smartest people I, for 100%. Very. No. Um, I, I'm still friends with him today, but We would disagree on the power of letting kids read. And early in my career, and early in my career specifically dealing with letting kids read for 15 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, um, he would push back. And he was like, at this time I had maybe two blocks of honors and the rest of my kids were on level. So basically – and and it wasn't a block. So I only taught the reading side, which is how our district was for a while. Right. Um, so in, in two classes, I had great readers. In the other classes, I had struggling readers. And he would be like, well, this is what's happening. This was his pushback. He would say, your smart readers are faking reading until they're done. Um, you have some that are reading. But he was like, most of them are just going to kind of fake it and go on and, and, and move on with their lives and be fine. And you won't know the difference because they're already good at reading to where any question you ask them, they're going to be fine. He was like, your struggling readers will also fake, but now they're going to wait for you to scaffold whatever you're doing. So you're going to think they're getting better <laughs> in reading, but really you're just scaffolding up. And as a young teacher, I did not have a rebuttal for that. I just kind of really hoped that Donalyn and Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher <laughs> were guiding me in the right way. Like I was like – I was I, I was like, yeah, I really love their books. I hope I'm going in the right direction. And at this time, in all honesty, like um, it was around that time I took Avidus training with you where you were one of my trainers. So oh. – uh, it was also like well i I trust Ochoa and I trust Abydos, and all of this <laughs> makes sense, but I can't fully articulate why that warning isn't a hundred percent warranted so as my as my past trainer, Miss Ochoa, what would you have <laughs> said to to I mean you you kind of mentioned to, it to your about academic the, coach. Yeah, you kind of mentioned it in the fix-up strategies <laughs> idea. But when people push back and say this reading time is really, you know, there's few kids benefiting from that. What's your what's your response to that?
0: I think a lot of times you're uh, the kid watching, of course, and knowing and being aware of those behaviors, and then you look for it, and then you try to thwart those behaviors. I would also say, but yeah. I think when you talked about that this is the only time some of these kids read, you cannot not afford the time to give them to read. And one of the things that these kids need more than anything is time. Uh, to do the work. And if our work is teaching them how to read, they need to be reading. Now, granted, those are some issues that come up. So, what you want to do to address them is you want to have a plan. So, if if I've got fake readers, or like you said, or if I realize I'm scaffolding too much, it was funny because, you know, I too have was an academic coach and there was one time uh, questioning is very important. And the wait time is very important. And there's nothing more powerful in a classroom than wait time. There just isn't. And the reason I say that, I, I was trying to show, a, it was funny, it was in a history class, and I was trying to show this teacher about wait time. And so I was modeling the lesson, and I wanted him to notice it was wait time. It was so funny because I'm waiting for the answer because the kids were, were t- they were supposed to have read And I was waiting for the answer. So I'm like, so tell me why, blah, 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 blah. You know, I can't remember the exact thing. It was about the War of 1812 or something. It was U.S. history. Anyway, and so I'm waiting. And I mean, I'm waiting. (laughs) So he's like, (laughs) he kind of goes, oh, come on, everybody. Y'all know that was the War of 1812. I'm like, and it was so cute because the girl goes, this little girl right in front of me, she goes, you wanted us to answer that, didn't you? And I went, yes. But see, I think what happens is uh, these kids who fake read know that we're going to, we're about to give them the answer because you got to put the power, I mean, the power, you need to maintain that power of wait time. And you got to trust the fact that they can't stand it either. And somebody's going to answer and you got to almost outweigh them. and if. It's too long for you. Don't give them the answer. You figure out another way to, to re ask, or you say, okay, let's go back in. I'm going to give you thirty seconds. I want you to read what, read, you know, a section, and then now let's be ready to answer the question. So you put it back on them as often as possible, and I think that's what you have to do. And, but what happens is we do, he's right. We scaffold, you know, we scaffold to the point that we give the kids the answer, yeah. you know, it just, well, it happens all the
1: time. Well, and I think, you know, now uh, in my, you know, this is several years at this point, my response would be, you're a hundred percent right. However, I'm aware of that. And that's what I'm trying to teach against. I'm trying to help the teacher. I'm trying to catch the kid that's so good at reading that's kind of fake reading and, and walking their way through the steps because I want them invested too. What I'm doing as a teacher is not serving that kid that is so extra and so good at what they're already doing. I want to give them a book that now I can invest them naturally, right? And mm-hmm. they're going to consume that book and they're going to run with it and they're going to do that because part of the problem might be they're the, – Unfortunately in middle school it's like this weird middle ground. You have kids who are ready for higher level books and we just don't have them in our libraries in general. Right? Like No, we don't. We we have a, a good balance, I think, especially in our district. But there sometimes like I have kids I'm like, Yeah, you're ready for like I mean, adult books. I mean not like that type of adult, if you know what I mean. But like, you know, like higher <laughs> level <laughs> like yeah, higher level just just like in like more thought, better, better writing, better execution, like all of that stuff, like you're ready for kind of the next level of fiction, and sometimes with the the lower kids, the reason they fake read and kind of wait is because you know we scaffold because we're told to do that and stuff like that, but a lot of the times we just never find out why that kid is struggling and don't hand them a book that they can tackle on their own. We have to remember that independent practice is not. About pushing them, right? Independent practice is about getting better about where they're at and then slowly moving them up. You know, I don't know the original quote of this, but it's like every book a kid reads is a book towards literacy. So if they're reading Amulet and as a sixth grader and they need to read Amulet 400 more times, then that's 400 books of reading into literacy it's the same thing for die of a wimpy kid we've heard middle school teachers gripe that kids read die of a wimpy kid all the time but it's like if they need to read that to get comfortable with books and to make it through something then let that's where they're at they will they will let you know in behavior or vocally where they need to go next And that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where the heart of what we're saying is. It's like, I think the, the anatomy to go bring it back to that original question, the anatomy of a reading conference is where are my readers at? What do they need from me to kind of nudge them a little farther? Not too far. You don't want to scare them. You don't want to scar them. Right? scare them or scar them. But just far enough. So let's, let's pivot a little bit. Let's get to the writing side of this conference because this okay. is where this is where I'm a little bit more all over the place. So you asked the question of kind of how do you approach it? Do you have a specific place? Do you have all of that? And in my writing conferences, so the way my class runs is they come in, they write the standard down in their craft book. Um, if it's a standard we've attacked before, we don't spend a lot of time on vocabulary. If it's a brand new standard, we will break down some of the academic language, all of that fun stuff. I usually hand out a piece. We read the piece. We analyze it as readers and writers. They go into their reading independently. I either read with them and or conference, depending on the day, depending on the students. And then about after 25 minutes to 30 minutes of read time, we transition into our writing for the rest of the block. And that gives them between 30 minutes and 35 minutes of really pure Drafting, writing, publishing—all the stuff that's happening in writing workshop—and I confer the whole time. I am almost in entire in the entire writing block. I have uh, actually bought this year a writing stool that has wheels, so I just roll around literally through. Rolling conference, I do, and I just kind (laughs) of roll around. And I go sometimes. I I go to have one of those. Well, sometimes I go back to the same student. Five times in a conference because we'll talk early like I'll, they'll always start right Sometimes at the end of the day i'll say hey at the beginning of tomorrow Make sure I come to you first because I don't have time to read your piece And i'm going to give you time so sometimes my writing conferences start that way But a lot of the times I just go all right who needs a conference first and they go me and I go sweet And I go whoop and I run right over there with my ipad in my hand and I go all right What are we looking at today? And we talk. And sometimes they need ideas. Sometimes they want me to read something for feedback. Sometimes they worked on feedback that I gave them. So they're wanting more feedback or to check to see how well they did. And then I'll go away. And that reader come, that uh, person will say, all right, come check this. And I'll come back. So sometimes I'll confer with the same kid five times in a day sometimes I will stay with like two groups because we're like knee deep in some deep conferences. That's kind of like my writer groups, you know, the, when you talk to one kid and the, the writing conference is going, on, a lot of kids kind of pay attention to what's being said and stuff like that. So some days I don't make it around the room. Some days I hit, you know, 25 students in a day, depending on like, sometimes they're just quick little conferences and the, it depends on where they're at in the piece, but I, I just confer the whole time. And I like, I don't even know. I just love it. The writing conference and the writing workshop is my favorite time of day because it's the most free. I never know what I'm going to get when I'm rolling to this student um, <laughs> versus this one. And it's just so energetic. I think. Uh, Lynn Dorfman, I think is her name. I think she calls them clip clipboard conferences where oh, she okay. has her little her little clipboard and she's walking around and she's talking to her students and stuff like that and um yeah, I just it's so free flow for me. The writing time is 100% of me with students. If I have an administrator that walks in during writing workshop, they always have to look for me because I'm in a sea of students. I am never at my desk. I'm never anywhere else. Even in COVID era teaching, you know, we all have masks on, we're all sanitized, but I'm still rolling around the room because I just don't see uh that that's just how I feel comfortable. Um and it it, it and I think it really offers a lot for the kids because I'm with them. Like it's, it's normal at this point. So they're like, let's go, let's talk. And I don't know how, what's your writing conferences like? How does that, is yours more controlled than that?
0: Oh, I don't have them anymore. It's COVID. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. What did that (laughs) be a downer? You're just like, nope, don't talk to my students. No, I don't talk to them. No. Um, I think I shared the last time is this particular, well at this school, you know, I've had them where I've done what you're talking about. Like I had a, I had a, a bench and I would just take it with me and I would sit right next to the student and I would get out there in the middle of them. I, I still walk around and then I'll pull up a chair beside them. They pretty much have a chair between each, like it's every other seat that have them at tables, but the way our, our chairs are created, rolling around is not something I can do now. So, uh, so that the, the the way the classroom or the furniture I'm allowed to have has made a big difference in my conferences. So I, uh, last year I had it, I had, it I had a conference table, but I've had to spread everybody out. So I had to get rid of the conference table. So I moved. So now I just have, I pulled that teacher chair. So I have two teacher chairs and they're real soft and cushy office chairs. And there's no other chair in the room like it, except for mine and the conference and the, my conference chair. So I just call it my conference chair. And so what I do is at the, at the very beginning of a writing pro, procedure I'm probably our school wants us to be a little more everybody on the exact same page so my workshop model looks a little bit different than it would be if I was just like just doing it on my own because if I was doing it on my own I think it would look more like yours where I'd, I might have a table of readers over here a table of writers over there it might look more like Nancy Atwell's which I modeled everything I even have the, let me tell you Nancy Atwell I even have <laughs> I, I, I have the uh, easel. You know, she's got in one of her books, A Lesson That Changes yep, writers. Yep. she's got the whole entire easel. My husband, when he was alive, he made me the easel. I had the rocking chair and I had the, I mean, I I looked like, I'm just telling you, I look like Nancy Well, except for in the hair. <laughs> my hair's a little bit different. But the classroom looked the same. I modeled shoes. it. Yeah, I'm probably a little bit taller. But anyway, the whole point is, is that's my ideal. However, in today's world, I said, can I bring my easel? Nope. Can I bring my? Nope. Can I bring, So, I'm stuck with whatever furniture I've been given, which is fine. I mean, it, it all looks fancy and new and cool, but it's not my old-timey stuff that I like. So, my easel is still sitting at my house, and I look at it every day on my way out to inspire me for what I want to be. However, what does mine look like? It looks like, uh, so at the beginning of a writing piece, and where I was going with this, is... You know, if we're supposed to be doing informational text essays, then almost all of us are doing it. So where I, where I try to make it more workshop model is like we talked about that one lesson where they're all getting to choose their own type of piece. Uh, They're not type of piece, but their topic and things like that. So, so at the beginning, I'm like, okay. I, I'll give them that activity on how to brainstorm on their topic. And then I'll say, if anybody needs help, I'm going to be right over here now at this time and y'all can come conference with me. And they'll ask me, can you come, you know, can I come conference? It's usually about two or three kids. And I just write down who I've seen. And, and if I haven't seen somebody, then I'll go out to them. So I'll go out. Um, I try to go out at least when I say out, I'm I'm always walking around my room, except for when I say, okay, y'all can come sit in my conference chair if you. You know, and I'll sit down in my spot for my conference and then I'll have and I'll be writing myself, you know, writing whatever I want to write. And then, you know, in my notebooks and then I'll have them uh, come see me. So at the beginning, I might have them. They might ask for uh, topic finding ideas so that might be if you're having trouble, come see me. Or if I want them to, if we're working on leads, I might do a mini lesson on leads. If you need help, come see me. And then when we get into the middle, like right now, they're all, um, they've already written their pieces. I've shown them how to do, I've done several mini lessons on uh, types of paragraphing and different things like that. And so now they're at the point where they're going to put it all together and they're going to type their final piece. So in the meantime, I've had like three or four conferences with every every person. So I ask them at the beginning, think if you need a conference with me, um, you need to think about what you really want me to help you with. And then they'll come and sit down and I'll say, okay, what is it that you really need help with? Uh, what What's your question? And they'll say, well, I don't know where to start. And I'll say, okay, well, read your start to me. Let's hear it. And then I have them read those sections. I don't have them read the whole piece anymore. I used to do that, but it made it so long I couldn't get to other kids. So I have them read the parts that they want me to hear and I make them read them to me, where I don't, I don't, I'll look at it while I'm reading, but I want them to read to me because I think they get that practice of reading and hearing their own words. So I don't know if I've answered
1: your question. No, you did, and you gave me a good idea I need to do more of that I need to have Because in in my uh, reading conferences I will have students read Like a passage they like Or like a paragraph or something like that Just to kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, listen to fluency And listen to how they're phrasing stuff And maybe Uh, Help them that way like especially if they're struggling with comprehension like are they reading phrases the way they need to I don't do it in writing so much. So I that's definitely Something that I need to do is like, okay, you read this section to me like what like Mm because i've had students who are like I don't like this stanza. It's like, okay, let's read it out loud And then Mm -hmm. because that's what because that's what we're doing like when we're reading it like we hear it As readers who have read out loud forever, right? Like we've done it, especially you. Like, I mean, you, I mean, how many pieces have you read out loud? Like you're used to the way language, uh, flows and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm a performance person by nature. So like, I have a, (laughs) I have an ear, I have an ear for the way. Yeah, I know. No, no (laughs) one would guess. You know, what's funny about this This is a total tangent. I, uh, we were, we had a half day this Friday, right? So Mm -hmm. our, uh. We were planning with my seventh grade team, and I – the way I (laughs) just started the conversation was very – announcer ish. And they went, man, did you, were you born with that announcer voice? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I kind of was, but it's been, it's been worse since I've done podcasting for so long because like, you know, now it's just like the moment a camera's on or if I'm presenting, I'm like, all right guys, this is what we're doing today. And it's just, it's just kind of who I am. But this, mm-hmm. this idea Of giving kids time to read their own uh, writing is, um, that's good. That's a great idea because there's a reason it sounds funny in their mind. And sometimes they might just realize they're missing words that they thought they put in there because you read stuff a certain way. Um, It's why you can't. At a certain point, you can't edit your own work because you read what's supposed to be there, not read what's there.
0: Right. And if you hear them pause and you're like, well, you paused when you read that to me, but I don't see the punctuation here that yeah. tells me you should have paused. So how would a reader read that? Let me read that, how how somebody was just reading it would read it. And then I'd read it to them. And they're like, well, that's not what I... Okay. So, but, you know, most of the time, if they have already, if they come to me with a question in mind on what they want to improve, then I know for sure that they're already self-analyzing. They're analyzing their own writing. They're, they've are they already read over it more than once because they've had to read over it to figure out what it is they want. And sometimes I will actually say, um, Jacob, I need you to come over here right now, please. And I don't say it like that, but Jacob, can I see you, please? Uh, make sure you bring your... And and then somebody else, likes, I need to see you too. So sometimes I'll break, I'll, I'll just make them come see me. And then that gets them used to it. And I'm like, so I've noticed blah, blah, blah. And uh, so how's it going for you? Tell me about your writing. You know, how's what we're doing right now? How's that helping you? And then I, sometimes I've found kids by doing that. I found that they were stuck and um, all of that. So it's kind of neat. I enjoy it. I mean, I just think it's a lot of fun to watch the kids light up when they realize, oh, I didn't think I could do it that way. Oh. And then they go back and say, okay, uh, show me tomorrow how it turns out.
1: Well, so it's kind of neat. And it's this whole, like, if if people get anything from this episode, I think it's, like, I, this stuff is, is what excites me. You know, like, I don't. Mm-hmm. And this is why planning has become increasingly more difficult because, you know, when you sit down and you write quote unquote lesson plans, mine have become almost bullet points of, okay, I saw my students doing this on Monday. So Tuesday I want to show this and this is what I'm looking for in their conferences, right? And it's it's so much more the way I think about my lessons are so much more responsive to student need than curriculum. Like, you know, we don't, I think that the adage of we don't teach curriculum, we teach kids. Curriculum is designed or should be designed to support that. And that Mm -hmm. means sometimes like, yeah, this, this, writing point is not in the curriculum this six weeks, but guess what? My kids are doing it. So I have like, what are you gonna do? Just right. let them flounder for a whole or more than like what if it's not taught until the fifth six weeks? What are you like and they're doing it now? You're just not gonna wait until the end of the year for them right. to for for this to be a teaching point. Like that that's ludicrous to me. And and the this format though, what we're talking about, this kind of letting kids go and then conferring and really thinking about how to approach them, how to leave, you know, I think, you know, if we want to talk about the anatomy of a writing conference, like I want to leave them more empowered than they were before I sat down with them. I want them to in some way or form be more inspired to put more words on the page or if they're revising to fix the words on the page or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that, the anatomy of what that looks like for you, I think, depends on personality. I think the way you – I've seen you do it. I think the way you go about it is slightly different than me, but we reach mm-hmm. the same results even though it might be a little different depending on just personality. Like I think I win kids over a lot with just my energy and my ability to kind of connect to them Just from personality wise, and I think you win them over with like your just ability to make everything seem important. Like I've seen you read the (laughs) most vapid stuff sometimes, and you're just you have a strength of just making it seem so important and like the biggest (laughs) idea. And you, I mean, you're you're unique in that. And I, I struggle with those things, so I approach it in different ways when I'm helping those students. But I think for teachers listening to this, it's like if you want the anatomy of a writing conference, it literally comes down to what are you passionate about? What are you great at? How do you impart that to a student? So they feel better after talking to you. A student should never feel worse after talking to a teacher.
0: No, they should feel better. You're right. Uh, You, you made me think of something real quick, if that's okay. Sure. And uh, on that last lesson, that we went over you know i'm in the middle of doing that lesson with the informational text so i let i gave it open and man i let it open they got to choose whatever they wanted so i have got some of the most different topics this year <laughs> i've got a seventh i have a seventh grader writing about real estate <laughs> okay wow. y'all can't see jacob right now but his face is looking what all right. <laughs> I mean, real estate. And so when you're talking about making that sound. So I had to, when she told me, Chow, I'm, I'm doing real estate. And I was thinking, I mean, I had to fight that face. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? I and I said, so tell me why you chose real estate. And she said, well, we just moved into a new home. And the lady that was our agent, she gave us our dream. She helped us find our dream home, and I want to do that one day. Go figure, go well, figure. I mean, and I said, <laughs> "That talking about making something there." I didn't know that was that important. I mean, a seventh grader.
1: But what if yeah. I did not opened it? Sure. Well, also on the on a side note, shout out to that agent because you know that's their slogan of some kind. Yes. Like <laughs> their marketing <laughs> is so good that, that they have a seventh grader using <laughs> it in their writing.
0: That's true, but the whole thing is just like I think that's what I want to be. I mean, I've got them. Wow. I've got one kid. He's doing TikTok, and they're like, "Oh, you did TikTok?" And he's, you would think he's talking about how he likes TikTok. He's actually, his angle is. Uh, is social media, such as TikTok, something we really need to pursue as young kids? And I mean, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so talking about right. what's important, you know. So when you said that, it was like I've really had to think about some of these these uh, ideas that were not they're not simple ideas that these kids have come up with. Of course, I have your regular football and all that, but it's it's well, uh, it's pretty neat to
1: watch these kids work. I you know I think that's what this really comes down to is I think when you confer and when you trust the the conferring process and you and you trust workshop in general what mm-hmm. you find out is the majority of kids are thinking like they're they're I mean they're learners like we forget like like ki- like <laughs> sometimes I feel like we have this notion just as the educational community and parents in general and just adults is like kids don't learn unless adults tell them stuff. And it's just not true. Kids learn mostly by watching and doing. And then like th- there's such a small portion that they actually learn from being told something. And when you allow kids to pursue what they're interested in, when you allow kids to think about the world around them that they care about, it doesn't matter what part of the world, right? It could be social media, it could be real estate, it could be all <laughs> kinds of stuff. There are, I think the skill of a teacher is to capitalize on that and be able to support their interests because they might, as they dive in, they might change their interest over time. Like I think we we overplay this desire to get kids to be quote unquote intellectual so early, like let them enjoy what they're interested in. Right. Like give them tools mm-hmm. and let them go. And sometimes it'll fail. Like I've had kids like, like a maybe not real estate, but like something where they get into something and then they find out they hate it like halfway into it. And they're like, Nope, <laughs> never mind. Like that's not the world I want to be in. And well, exactly. Cause I had another student. Can I, can I come to you?
0: Can I come to your conference chair? Sure. Come on over. Ms. Ochoa, I have got to change. This topic is not working. I need help. Okay. Well, is it too late? I said, it's never too late. You might have to double time some of the assignment, but it's never too late. So,
1: well, and that's, I think that's the magic of it. And, If anyone walks away from this, it's like, just trust the process. Let you know, try. I know we have limits. Every teacher has limitations based on curriculum, what your district needs, what your principal needs, what your team needs, what your department chair needs, whatever needs you're trying to serve in your life. But it's also, you know, I think we have more room than we like to give sometimes like let kids explore and it's terrifying sometimes. And sometimes you're like, that's a horrible idea, but go for it. And, <laughs> um, and sometimes it turns out better than it needs to be. So, you know, it is what it is. Like, I think, uh, if we want revolutionaries, if we want kids to make a better world, then we have to let them explore ideas that's never been explored or, or realize at an early age that the ideas that they're exploring suck. And they can go on and move on <laughs> to the next thing. So, But with that, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Crafted Draft podcast. Hopefully this kind of two-part uh, experience of conferring was useful to you. Conferring is such an intricate uh, idea. I'm sure we'll talk about it much more on the podcast. But... Um, it is the heart of the, of the workshop, as we said in the last episode. So check it out. If you did, if this, if you're just now coming to this one, go check out that episode link will be at craftanddraftworkshop But if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating, a review, something on the podcast app of your choice to let other educators know that this podcast is worthy of their time. Share it with your team, comment, reach out to us on social media you can find crafts and draft on facebook and at crafts and with all the episodes hit subscribe on the podcast app where you can get every episode friday morning ready to get your planning on with us to talk about workshop but for everything else ladies and gentlemen know that we are here for you